clubhouse. Man's clothing says a lot about who he is. I commend you on your sartorial choices of late. You look professional. Hmm? Like someone to be taken seriously. This tie, though. You don't like it? Oh, it's fine. For now. You're young and in charge of men much older than you, so... You don't wear one? Mm -mm. Most men wear ties because they have to, right? The absence of a tie lets people know that you answer to no one. To each his own, though, son. You look good. Thanks, Dad. Hallelujah. Welcome to Tales from Yaya's, your dedicated after-show podcast for Showtime's Your Honor. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing part 18 of Your Honor. It was written by Brandy Nicole and was once again directed by Carrie Preston. Brandy has been a credited staff writer this entire season of Your Honor. This is their first written by credit for the show, however. And Carrie, you'll recall, directed last week's episode. Just a community note, please join us on Facebook in the Showtime Your Honor TV series fan group to discuss all things Your Honor with all the other fans so many good ones in there lots of great theories lots of great ideas just a reminder we've assumed you have watched this episode and so we're not going to be doing a step-by-step recap nor are we going to hold back on spoiling things so if you don't want to be spoiled then you should pause this go watch part 18 then come back and give us a listen as we deep dive into all the nooks and crannies of your honor that was mr movie phone jumping in there for a second <laughs> i like that your like honor that. playing on friday night streaming sunday nights on cable <laughs> i like that hey mike this week no charlie no nancy no senator grandma Oof, that's a lot. A lot of no's, especially for characters that are now important to the plot. Senator Grandma, not so much. She's been, other than her one really terrific episode with Michael, she's really been on the periphery. But coming out of that bombshell information drop at the end of Part 17 and Nancy's role-playing in Saving Michael, kind of shocking we don't get a look at Charlie or Nancy in this episode. I very much thought we'd see at least Senator Grandma, honestly. Yeah, I feel like she's due back, but maybe we get her she in the does. final two episodes. This episode, uh, last week, you'll remember, I said last week felt like a penultimate episode. It felt very much like moving all the pieces into position for a finale. This one, to me, felt a little bit like filler. This felt like a little bit of treading water. Not in a bad way. There was some great stuff that came out of this episode, but it felt like the plot didn't move over, move forward terribly much, other than maybe with Big Mo and what's going on in Desire. So with the closure of Robin's storyline, maybe we need to start like, you know, kind of chugging our little bicycle wheels a little faster to kind of get going again for the penultimate and the finale. I feel like we need to get a little steam going again. I, yeah, I think that's right. I think this is maybe the the pellet, the palate cleanser before the ramp up for the final storyline. Mm-hmm. But let, what do we have to wrap up? We have to wrap up Olivia 
and whatever her plan is to take down Jimmy and the mob and Michael's role in that. They 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 set that up at the very end of this episode via Olivia going to Fia and then Michael stepping in. We have to wrap up whatever is going to happen between Desire and the Baxter family war which was teased in last week's episode though and and teased between the the confrontation nose to nose confrontation of Big Mo and Gina in this episode and then we also have to wrap up the desire coup d'etat or internal civil war that seems to be brewing, especially give after this episode and whatever coup d'etat is going to happen in the Baxter family, especially now given the state of Gina and Jimmy's marriage and Carmine's return and, and the role he's played in this season. So those are the four big items we have to wrap up. That's a lot of pressure to put on episodes nine and 10 for the season. I mean, I know a lot of people are already starting to bang the drums for season three because I think that they're seeing or feeling the same thing you are, which is, you know, how are they possibly going to wrap this all up in a way that satisfies everybody and leaves everyone in like a rest position where you feel like, okay, that makes sense. We came to a conclusion, not just like, and the Baxters are running amok, you know, like, but something like where we actually come to some sort of ending. Certainly, we've both seen two-hour movies that are very, you know, satisfying and make us happy that that they told us a beginning, middle, and end. So we do still have a full two hours left. That's very true, nor do they need to answer every question. I, I think they need to give some conclusive direction pointing as to what happens. But again, this is a series, and we've talked about this all this season, and we talked about it in the first season. This is a show that is not afraid to take care of things off screen. For whatever reason, that is the creative choice that they have made. They will handle large and small items off screen. So that is a possibility. I don't believe that a show owes it to the viewers to answer every single question in a bow. But it does feel like there are some significant plot points that do need to be resolved or else you run the risk of people asking what was the point. Right. I think that's what we have to avoid. We have to avoid the larger what was the point of this by the end of episode 10, because I don't think we're getting season three as much as I would like it. I agree. I do not think we're getting season three as well. I, I, I really feel that people are just so excited about these characters that they're going to hang on <laughs> for some potential for season three. And I guess we should never say never. This was not supposed to be a season two situation. So we, we can keep a little hope there that maybe possibly there's more to be said here. And maybe some of our key players fall away for some of the, you know, like maybe we start following the Baxters in some sort of spinoff. I don't know. Let's get into the episode. So it felt like at the beginning of this episode with Michael and Fia and the baby and all that sunlight uh, running into the house in the kitchen, it felt like, one, there was a slight time jump from where we where we left off with Michael drying his tears as he finds Fia sitting on his steps or Senator Grandma's steps of the house. Felt like there was a little bit of a time jump here. But I don't know about you, this opening scene felt like a dream sequence to me at the start, especially with all of that uh, diffused light coming in and the happy family and the baby eating and she's getting her GED and Michael is happy looking and joyous as much as we've ever seen him in the show. Did you think this was a dream sequence? Did you know right away like this is reality 
it it did have like a detergent ad vibe to it, didn't it? Where it was like it was like all the friends are getting ready to go for their day in the kitchen and getting all their stuff together, and it was kind of like that. Yeah, it had that or vibe. Or like Maxwell, to it. like when uh, when uh, David comes home in the Christmas like uh, uh, Folgers coffee ad. Yes, yes, you know? yes. It felt yes. like that, like a happy reunion, but I, but it wasn't. It was real life. But the fact that they seem so settled into their daily routine and that she's going for her GED. I think we have to assume there's been at least a couple week time bump here. And the fact later on, the Baxters know where she is. They know, quote unquote, she's playing house with Desiato. All leads me to believe that we've jumped forward a little bit of time anyway. There's mention here that Senator Grandma says she is a blessing, not a burden. And she wants she wants Fia and the baby to stay in the house. This feels like a meeting I wish we had seen on screen. I know Margaret Martindale is busy. She's she's working on a, a bunch of different shows and projects, and she's high in demand. I just watched her in Cocaine Bear. See? <laughs> I was like, Senator Grandma! <laughs> Got to tune into the Pop Culture Review podcast uh, next episode yes. to get a review on Cocaine Bear. But, uh, yeah, I, I feel like that I wanted to see, especially after that emotional interaction she, Senator Grandma and Michael had in the kitchen where he tells her about the existence of a baby. I, I really want to see that coming together. Now, it's unclear if they've actually met at this point, right? It seems maybe Michael has just told her Fia and the baby are there, and maybe she's still, you know, at the state house, and so she actually hasn't met them yet, and so maybe we do get that meeting. But personally, as a sappy heart, I feel like I want to see that kind of emotional meeting. Okay, I have a question. So since we know that Senator Grandma was the person who did tell Adam more, told about the the affair and stuff like that, right? Do we think that Senator Grandma is the one that spills the beans that Adam killed Rocco to Fia? Oh, I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. I mean, she has I like, to know. I liked your gasp there. <laughs> well, she has to know the damage that will cause. And I feel like Senator Grandma, I don't think, I think, I think she only told Adam about the affair because Nancy had her foot on her throat a little bit about it. I don't really think Nancy's the one who instigated that whole thing. Okay. I, I can't see Senator Grandma, after all she's been through and the catharsis that she's gone through the season and trying to move on and get a reason for Robin being dead and, and Adam being dead. And and again, I don't think Senator Grandma knows the full extent that led to Adam's death. I mean, she knows he's dead, obviously, but I don't think she knows the ins and outs of everything that Michael knows and and the role he played and the role the Baxter's played. I don't think she knows all of that. But it would seem to me against her best interests of wanting to have some tangible thing in life that reminds her of Rocco and Robin, by extension, having this this great grandbaby feels like it would be counterproductive for her to spill the beans about Adam and Rock Adam and 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 Rocco's death. I just am looking for patterns, I guess, and parallels, and it wouldn't surprise me if we went through a same cycle. Just because that's the way that story writing goes. That's very true. That's very true. She's she is a bit of a wild card because she's so infrequently on the show. So there's a little there's a little bit of chaos when she re-enters. What role is she going to play in that episode? So you you can never be fully sure. I think Olivia potentially telling Fia was the biggest shocker because we ran down the list of people who knew and we never really put it together. We just did this last episode and we never really put Olivia as being a possibility of telling Fia, but this episode certainly all of a sudden put that on the table. Let's get to Olivia and Fia, because I think Olivia's tact here is interesting and worth talking about, because maybe she's not as dumb or as incapable as we think. Let's uh, let's give a listen. 
What do you want from me? I want you to be the compassionate, strong person that I know you are. I want you to make right the things that your family has done wrong. I need you to get me inside the Baxter family. I won't spy on my family, no matter what you say they did. What about what they're going to do? Hmm? This is about the past. But my case is also about what they're doing right now and what they intend to do in the future. Via, I know you're not like the rest of your family, but if you choose to do nothing now, you've got to wonder what makes you so different. What the hell do you think you're doing? I think she really gets her with that last line, this idea of you're you're not like your family, but if you don't do anything, you're no better than, oh, can you say you're really no better than them? I think that's really the line that hooks Fia more than anything else in that very long conversation that Olivia has with her. It would absolutely get under my skin. If she said that to me, I'd be like, am I no better? You know, like that, that was a good one. And this was a very good tack to take in order to really just get Michael. It was a good trick. This is the kind of shit that like you have to stop and appreciate Olivia's skill because yes, she, has she been bumbling? Yes. Has she made some really clear mistakes and some and miscalculations? Yes. Has she been reckless? Yes. This was a masterstroke. She goes to Michael. He says, no, get the fuck out of my house. She is not deterred. She goes to Fia because what is Michael going to do and really puts him in a corner. This is exactly how she got Michael to play ball. This is exactly the same as her in the prison with Michael playing the clip of his confession incriminating Charlie. This is exactly the same. You won't deal with me directly, so I'm going to use the only leverage I have against you, and that is going to get you to do my bidding. And it's exactly what she wanted anyway. Because at the end of the episode, when she tells Michael, you know, I, I, I wish the best for Fia and the baby. I don't really want anything to happen to them, but you're forcing my hand, so well, I'll do what I gotta do, because taking down the Baxters and preventing harm, she has a real theme of preventing future harm when she's talking to Fia and when she's talking to Michael. The, what's in the past is past, but going forward we can do some good here and prevent harm, future harm. And that's how she gets Michael on board at the end of the episode. I think it was a smart tact. I mean, she had no more cards to play with Michael directly. So to go around him like this and and have him have to pull out his hero cape and protect Fia and the baby, this was a very good move on her part. One thing to note before we play on, we have a couple, we have two more clips relating to Fia and Michael and where Fia is on, and working with Olivia. And then we have a clip from Michael and Olivia from the end of the episode I want to talk about. But we have to bold underline, italicize the important note here. Olivia is using the Kofi killed Rocco narrative and not exposing one, her relationship with Michael or two, the fact that it was Adam that killed Rocco. That is extremely important because that takes the wild card off the table to some extent of Olivia being one to expose this information. We talked about this last week. It really has to be if, if he is going to find out the only cathartic way for mental health purposes is it really has to be Michael that tells her eventually because it has to be part of Michael's redemption arc that he comes clean to Fia and, and lay it bare and let her decide whether or not 
everything she has built her life around now, mainly the baby, but also having Michael in her life, is worth it. So by Olivia adopting that narrative, the the official narrative that everyone knows outside of Jimmy, Gina, and Michael, and Charlie, and Nancy, uh, and Lee... And yeah, so outside of the people who do know, it's important to note that she's sticking to the Kofi killed Rocco narrative. I I want people to focus on that, though, because there's going to be a lot of questions, I think, especially as we go into these final two hours of how does she not know? Why doesn't why doesn't Fia know that all season there has been these questions of does Fia not know? Fia definitely doesn't know this. This conversation, I think, cements the fact that Fia doesn't know and no one seems to be in a hurry to tell her the truth. Well, yeah. And it also feels like it's like it's the the shoe that has to drop. It's the thing that that must be told and we have to deal with whatever fallout. And we're not sure. I mean, Fia could go all different directions. She could have an initial holy crap and be angry and then but come back in the end. She could she could storm off and never come back again with the baby. Like there's a lot of things that could happen. It's exciting to still have something, a known something for there to for us to all know, like once that happens, it's going to explode this whole situation again. And there's also this possibility that the show ends and Fia never finds out. Would that be so crazy? Do you think it's possible for that to happen? I, th- I, I think it is. Po- I think it is unlikely, but I think it is possible because in real life, sometimes we don't know all of the facts. And sometimes mm. it is a long time before we learn them, maybe years. Maybe this is a thing that maybe Fiat does find out eventually, but we'll never see it. And that's the kind of thought experiment that a show could end and not tell us. And we have to then decide for ourselves, did she ever find out or did she live her whole life never knowing? It would be very chilling, right? If it like is. Michael like looked into the camera at the end and there was some sort of indicator, some sort of conversation in the background, like tipping the conversation a little bit towards that, but like looking into the camera at us, like she still doesn't know, <laughs> you know, like it would be very like, <sighs> well, I mean, Fia doesn't, she's in the room and Michael, I, that's why I played the end of the clip that I did until Michael says, what the hell are you doing here? Fia doesn't pick up on that aggressive tone. That's not how we normally greet people that we find in our house. If we don't know who they are, but <laughs> right. Fia doesn't pick up on it. And Olivia immediately gets into the shtick of I don't know you you don't know me and Michael plays along with it Fia doesn't pick up on that so there's a thread she could have picked that like that's a weird thing for you to be like do you guys know each other but she doesn't and so now the secret remains safe let's jump ahead to later in that night when Fia is talking to Michael and she seems to be inclined to work with Olivia but Michael has other advice are you really my lawyer no no I lost my license to practice law Well, you're the closest thing I've got, so is there any advice you can give me? I think you should stay out of it. I think you should stay away from whatever messes your family has created. Even if they belong in prison? Fia, nothing good will come out of you getting involved. You're a 17-year-old mother. It's not your job to fight crime. Your job is to take care of him. By taking care of yourself. Here. What's this? It's Adam's college fund. I made you the beneficiary. I can't take this. It belongs to you. What am I supposed to do with it? How about you make a new five-year plan? 
I like this theme. This is the episode theme for me, this idea of five-year plans and the fact that life so rarely ever goes according to any kind of plan, certainly not a five-year plan. I don't, I, I, I'm hard-pressed to find any people who look back and say, this is where I thought I'd be five years ago. So I like that Michael tells her that up front in the episode, and then it kind of bookends it here in this conversation. He He's saying, go make a five new five-year plan, but he's really saying, go start your life over somewhere else with this money, which I imagine has to probably be a sizable chunk that Michael and Robin would have set aside for Adam for NYU or wherever. I was really happy that there was this chunk of money and that it, it the way that it worked, that it was Adam's and, you know, that this could be used now for his little family, which seems so weird to say, but, you know, Fia and little baby Rocco are his family. So it's like, you know, Adam sort of providing from beyond the grave feels like, mm, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. gosh, I'm happy that they're being provided for. But but Michael is totally right. I mean, I, I think the writing was perfection when they were saying, you know, you, you're, you're a 17 year old. You're, you're not out here to like fight crime. Like, yeah, good call. Way to like take it back to reality, like from this kind of really wild and crazy, you know, everyone's just running the streets and there's gangs and there's all this stuff going on. It's like, no, remember though, at its core, this was about some teenagers and what was going on here. So let's, let's just be clear and bring it back to like a smaller story. You're, you're picking up something because I think it's so relatable. I know with my own kid every now and then if he hears me grousing about money or or something and then he'll say something like oh i can pay for it or you know something like that and and then i have to turn to him and be like it's not your responsibility your responsibility is to be a teenager your responsibility is to worry about school and and getting good grades and and trying your hardest on your sports teams you're there there's a time when you shouldn't have to worry about adult things now Fia is a mother, so she does have to worry about a significant adult thing of being a mother. But that is also very different than having to worry about fight crime or bring down her family or get right. into the emotional territory of betraying her family, which was, I'm glad to see, an emotional hang up for her. I like that she says to Olivia, no matter what my family's done, I'm not going to spy on them. I like that thread of loyalty she has in her even when confronted with the monstrous things that her family may may have done and in fact did do. I think she's okay with condemning what they do in her heart. It's much further to go to want to turn them over to law enforcement. That's a lot. One thing about Olivia that always strikes me, and this is this is a character choice or this is a this is a writing choice, but I I like it and it it goes towards Olivia's sneakiness. You notice how Olivia is always coming in through the back door just at the right moment when someone has left a scene or the coast is clear. Yeah. How long does Olivia spend waiting in the bushes? It has to be a significant <laughs> amount of her day, I imagine, yeah? Yeah, I think a long time. That explains where she's been this whole time. She's really just been in the bushes. Just waiting. She's just been waiting. Rosie Perez is in every episode. You, She's like a hidden Mickey. You have to find her in the bushes. The outtakes of the season will show, like, <laughs> Senator Grandma and Michael talking, and then, like, it'll zoom way out into the bush, and there's, like, Olivia. Michael, little, I'm waiting for you, Michael. Little Rosie Perez face. Just a little tiny little face. <laughs> she looks really good. I think she looks fantastic. I love how they have she's, costumed her. She's she very looks beautiful. She she looks great. I, I, that's neither here nor there. She looked good in this episode. I like the pants that she was wearing. I thought she looked good in this. <laughs> 
It's just a little Mike's corner. Sartorial choices. Well, that comes into this episode about what clothes say about you. But let's finish Michael, Michael, Fia, and Olivia. Let's play the end of the clip. This is what's really going to set up, I think, the final two hours of the main storyline. Michael saying, in exchange for leaving Rocco and Fia, baby Rocco and Fia alone, I will be your henchman. I will do your dirty work. Let's take a listen. Where's your client? She has nothing to do with her family. Well, I believe she could be very valuable to my case. You'd be ruining her life. <laughs> well, she has some rude awakenings on the horizon, whether she helps me or not. And what about my grandson? You help me convince her, we will make sure they're both taken care of. But I am running out of time. There are far too many lives at stake for me to ease up for the sake of those two. And I wish it was different, but Fia is the only member of that family who might cooperate. And there's no one else who could get me that close to them. I can't. You leave Fia and Rocco alone, and I will get you Jimmy Baxter. Olivia just out here playing 4D chess while we're all playing Mm -hmm. checkers. This is exactly what she wanted. Yeah, this was was well played. I know at the beginning of this, you were like, (laughs) I was... I was just absorbing the fact that you're like, Olivia had no plan. She just was like, not, she didn't have any idea what to do, blah, 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 like all that stuff, which I know I was saying, I don't understand Olivia's plan. I don't really get why they brought this storyline in. I still maintain that because even though this was a smart move, it is eight episodes, in, <laughs> you know, and we haven't seen her in so long. So I, I don't think that she's incompetent. I just was like confused with the pacing of her storyline, like why we spent so much time with just the Michael nagging, you know, texts and stuff like I, this was confusing. It must mean that there's going to be something very condensed and very explosive, I think, that they figure they can do in two episodes and that that will be enough to finish out this Olivia storyline. But when you look back at how long this storyline's been going on for her individually and how little progress she has made, I mean, she has nothing no, there's been no inroads with the Baxters. Well, there have been ep- episodes and episodes without her in it. So, yeah, no, for, for sure, pacing pacing of the storyline was an issue. Though I think maybe you can argue everything Michael did this season was influenced by Olivia or set in motion by Olivia. So in that way, she's a little bit omnipresent, right? She she's She's there. She's just just invisible yeah. or her her the the strings of her marionette doll have been pulling and playing all along and influencing thing right because even nancy nancy for this season was really acting as an instrument of olivia as it turned out oh yeah and of course the tracking of the phone was i mean key to the entire beckwith situation so i mean it it was an important storyline to be playing in the background it was just very quiet for how it was set up like it was set up like we're going to take down the baxters and then like all this other stuff really was great i mean it was awesome that we unraveled everything that happened with robin and olivia's phone is how nancy could get involved and all that stuff like it's it's great and i'm sure that was well planned it just was like as a audience member though you're sitting there being like you know where is that storyline and how are we taking the baxters down when we're already through episode eight to be fair, this may be a part of the year. They may be in a part of the year where there are a lot of good horse races. 
and then her attention would uh, would be obviously and understandably diverted. Oh, so, sure, sure, that makes you sense. know you really got to wait to the off the off season for horse racing <laughs> to, to, to get yes. Olivia's full thrust and genius. Yes. Uh, so while we have Michael taking a deal or making a deal with Olivia, there was another deal that was being talked about in this episode, and that was young Eugene back in OPP. We're back there where his older brother spent time, and Eugene has to decide in this episode whether or not to make a deal. Overall, what's what's your ten thousand foot view of Eugene and Lee in this episode? Because we got to get there. there there's a roller coaster that happens in this, a roller coaster of emotion and feelings in this episode with these two. I'm curious what your overall take is on this. Does Leaf still feel like the right one to be interacting with Eugene on the storyline? I don't feel like there could be anyone else but Lee because so much has happened with Eugene. I don't know who else would possibly get their arms around his story besides Lee. But man, I don't want him to plea out. I, I mean, I it, it's it all seems like they should be able to shout like this was no fair <laughs> you know like he didn't mean to get into this position and it was all no fair well that's eugene's position though i mean at the end of the episode that's very much eugene's position is yeah i, I want a chance to tell my story like he it almost feels like at the end of this episode he is willing to plea if he got to tell his story and it's not until lee tells him he won't be able to tell his story that he then decides no deal. We could jump there. Let's we can listen to the clip, yeah. right? Let's listen. Let's let's do this backwards. Let's listen to the no deal clip. That was your homicide, okay? How, how long would that be? Ten years. I know, but it's your first offense, and with good time, you'll be out in a few years. And if I take the deal, I got to plead guilty. You do. I gotta say, I murdered that kid. Do I get to explain my side of the story? I just want this to be over for you while you're still young. Well, how can I do that if the whole world thinks I'm just some thug who shot up a hotel? This is the best deal you're going to get. No deal. One more trial. Who wants to ask Eugene about how he feels about five-year plans? I make it bet he's not very happy with them or relying no. on them very much. Mm-mm. I, I mean, God, I mean, he's so young. Ten years seems like your entire lifetime. Even three years, even three years with good behavior feels like... He's going to be, he's a man when he gets out, even in three years. Well, and for God's sake, Kofi didn't make it. I wouldn't have any sense that I would make it three years. This is such a terrible position. Obviously, Lee is at like a breaking point as well. You know, I mean, she, she wants to figure this out for him, but I mean, it's, she's just doing like the lesser evil game right now, you know, that like, there's no way to get out of this because here's the thing. At the end of the day, Eugene did kill Adam. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's not like it's like, oh, he's accused of it, but we know he really didn't do it. I mean, he did do it. So, I mean, there is some element of like, how exactly can this work? You know, you did show up at a hotel and you did kill someone. Uh, you know, what what can he really hope for? 
Eugene's position here at the end of the episode is made more problematic because Lee fires all of her ammo at ADA Jarek, who played by Damon Gupton, who I love. He was a uh, a series regular in Black Lightning, and he was fantastic in that. And I, I really liked him here. This is a classic case of a guest star coming into a role. We may not see him again. Maybe we see him again. I think he made an immediate impact. I, I leaned forward when he was on the screen. I thought he was well done for such a side character. Um, balancing of, I don't want to send a kid away for jail, but he did do it. You know he did it. And also, he's a gang member, and my sympathy is limited because there are dead kids. There's a there's a dead kid here on the other end of, of Eugene's gun. It's, it's a complicated position, especially for being a man of color, for him to be taking this position. It, it's complicated, but I, I, I see where he is coming from on, on the, he's a gang member, he has to know something about desire. Let's start there, because that is a question that you and I, we love Eugene, we know Eugene, we have watched Eugene in his private moments, we have watched what he's gone through in the last two years storyline, timeline-wise of the show. Lee knows Eugene, but if you are the public, as represented by ADA Jarek, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it looks like a duck, it's a duck. And so listen, listen to this, this question of whether or not Eugene is a gang member. I don't know that. I know you say he did that because the cops say he did that. Same cops who said they found his body, same cops who tried to kill him. All I know is that people on your side never wanted my client to see the inside of the courtroom. I thought your boss was all about reform. And I thought you were only doing wills in the States these days. 30 years means he'd be my age by the time he got out. You got a lot of good years left. Do you have an offer I can actually take to my client? Apparently not. But I am open to alternative arrangements. Meaning what? Meaning, if your client has information I can use to prosecute upper-level members of Desire... He's not a gang member. Oh, come on, Lee. He's been the focal point of a war between Baxter and Desire for a year. On the night of his arrest, he had been spotted at Bufa's, a Desire front, and his last known residence in New Orleans was Little Mo Marl's apartment. Tell me, what more does one have to do to be considered a gang member? If he snitches on the wrong person, they will find a way to get to him inside. When you say it like that, 88 Jarek, I mean, yeah, he's a gang member, but you don't know him. He's a sweet baby boy. Like, yeah, he's not really a gang member. From his point of view, and, and when you're charged with trying to get drugs and gangs off of the streets, Eugene, who, who killed a guy, who everyone knows killed a kid, Eugene does feel like a public enemy, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. I mean, when you lay it out like that, yeah, it seems like he's unhinged and could do anything. Right. I mean, and Lee, she, he's not a gang member. Sure. Because again, she knows him. But remember the first time that she finds Eugene, he's slinging rock on the corner for desire. Like he's in the employ of desire when she first really gets to know Eugene. This gets to a central point of the Lee, the Lee storyline. I feel Lee is too emotionally invested in Eugene to the point of maybe not being the best person to represent him legally. And I think she thinks that she is. That whole scene when they're in the jail cell where she's having kind of a, cri- a crisis of faith. Let- let's take a listen to this because this is an interesting, I think, clue into where Lee is as a character. The prosecutor indicated that he might be willing to make a deal if you have information he could use. Information about what? Desire. Oh, no. 
No, no, no. I'm not a part of that. I know. No, do you know what'll happen to me in here if I get caught snitching? No, I know. I know. I know. No desire. I'm done. Maybe you need a better lawyer. What, you gonna bail on me now too? No, but I'm. I'm just trying to protect you. Then don't leave me. But I'm afraid that if I push too hard, if I push the wrong people, then something bad might happen. This is not the Lee we know. Lee is a firecracker. Lee knows she's a great lawyer. Lee knows she can she can navigate the system well. She is being hampered here by her personal affection for Eugene. The man bled on her couch, or the boy bled on her couch. She is emotionally invested in this, so she's saying things like, maybe you need a better lawyer. I'm afraid to push too hard. These are compromising words that she's saying here. Would make me worried as a third party watching her be <laughs> Eugene's lawyer. Think of how shook, though, she she has been with everything. I mean, she's lost her job, right? She's lost this big, high-paying job. She lost everything with Michael, which was bizarre when you think of it from Lee's point of view. I mean, she thought she was in some sort of relationship with him, you know? And then to have everything fall apart the way that it did, and then to have him turn into be the person that she never expected him to be, like, I think we're seeing her on still kind of trying to grapple with all of those things. So then trying to make a good choice for Eugene isn't like maybe the first thing you would say. I mean, you're a lawyer. Isn't like one of the first things you might say is like, maybe I should like recuse myself from this case. Like maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not the right fit for this because she, she has been involved in a lot of weird ways that another lawyer wouldn't have been involved. From my point of view, Eugene needs her because no one else is going to believe the stories and believe the way that she does. I mean, no one else is going to throw themselves over his body the way that she did. So, you know, I don't think that there's any, there's anyone else who could do this justice, but I get Lee being like questioning, you know, like, am, am I the right person? Am I even even able to look at this objectively and try to give good advice. I, I don't know that she is able to give great advice, but I mean, I think they have to hang on to each other. They have to. I mean, when Eugene hears her words of maybe you need a better lawyer and I'm, I don't know. And I'm afraid all he hears is you're leaving me. You're going to leave me now. I have no one else. You're leaving me. Like that's all Eugene hears. And ultimately I think is what keeps her there is she, she knows, or at least I think she feels Eugene literally, literally has no one left in this world. No one left in this world. They're all dead. Now, Lee, after he searched for her for so long, remember, after the night uh, that he tries to run away, remember, he when when uh, Desire picks him up in episode one of the season, he's at Lee's apartment. He's trying to get a hold of her. He's calling her on the phone, standing outside her apartment building. She's it. She is his family for all intents and purposes. And all he hears is these words of abandonment, and he can't deal with that. Now, let, let's get to why him not taking a deal is a problem, because he doesn't want to snitch and she's not going to force the issue issue of him snitching on Desire because she knows the ramifications of that. If he snitches on Desire, he's he's probably killed an OPP even faster than Kofi was. And that was pretty damn fast. So she decides to use her own information to blackmail the ADA into giving a better 
plea deal. The problem is, by doing this, ADA Jarek, we're going to hear in this clip right here, says, if I do this, if we do this plea deal, that I'm now going to go investigate that you're that I'm going to go take to my boss because you're blackmailing me. If this doesn't work out, I'm going to go full jugular for your client. So let's listen to the clip and then talk about the ramifications of Eugene not taking the deal that she negotiated here. He fixed a trial. Did you know that? He helped a guilty killer go free. Why are you telling me this? Because if that information got out, every case that got prosecuted in his courtroom, every conviction you guys got with Michael Desiato presiding will be reopened and appealed. It's got to be the DA's worst nightmare. Can you prove this? I don't need to prove it. I just need to take it to the press. And I will. So your strategy is to blackmail the DA's office? in exchange for a reduced sentence for your client. Yep. You could be disbarred for that, Lee. I've got another secret for you. I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. Why are you doing this, Lee? Because I let his brother down. I will talk to my boss, but if I drop the negligent homicide, that is the end of this negotiation. And believe me when I say that if you force me to try this case, I'll have no choice. It'll be murder one, charged as an adult for committing a crime we both know he did. That is life without parole. So forget how long he has to live in prison. He will die there. This is the problem of Eugene not taking the deal. If this is going to work, Lee is going to have to get Eugene to take the deal, but also figure out a way to let him tell his side of the story. Because, again, I think he's willing to plead guilty. He acknowledges that he killed him. I think he's willing to do that as long as he gets to tell his side of the story and and get to put on some record that he's not just a thug with a gun, that there was an extenu- extenuating, extenuating circumstances to why he did what he did and what happened. This is messy without with Eugene not taking the deal at the end of the episode. I felt like when he was like sort of wagging his finger being like talking about the bar, I felt I would have been like, I'm barely bored because <laughs> she doesn't want to be a lawyer anymore. And it just, Man, I, I felt don't know, that it like so, cracked me up. I felt that so hard not wanting to be a lawyer anymore. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. <laughs> But so what do you think? I mean, is this a good tact for Lee to take? Is this a ridiculous way to hang yourself situation? Or is it like this is the only possible move she had to make? So, I mean, she had to do something. And she if she's not planning on continuing in law, I guess she's cool with like burning all bridges. Well, that's what it is. This is a burn all of the bridges down. She will be persona non grata in the DA's office for blackmailing them. She will she will make enemies left and right from Charlie all the way down in the city. Lee will have to leave New Orleans probably after doing this. And even more fucked if it turns out it won't even work. She's played this card. She's lit the matches and and the oil on the bridge. It is now burning and it may not work out anyway if Eugene refuses to play ball with her. She spent a lot of chips on this 10-year negligent homicide plea that maybe Eugene doesn't take. 
that's risky. It's risky, but maybe also lends itself to the she's emotionally compromised. Lawyers in the normal course of representing their clients don't use their own personal ammo they have on behalf of their clients. They use the ammo their clients can provide because you have to be able to live a fight another day for your own career and for future clients. This feels like she kind of shot her load all at once in this particular manner. There, There's an interesting thing in this clip that I think sheds a little light on why people think Michael went to prison versus what he really did. Listening to ADA Javik's response in the beginning of the clip, he already went to jail. And then Lee says, but not for the things that I know. Everyone has been asking, and we hit upon this immediately in our first episode, why do people think Michael went to jail? Because it had to be some reason that didn't have the Baxters kill him immediately upon getting out of prison. It had to be something that didn't let people know or Charlie know that he had exposed Charlie, right? We hear in the first clip that maybe uh, in the back in the we hear in the clip in the first episode of the season, Olivia offhandedly says, charge him with tax evasion, whatever. It just can't be for this because he needs to be a clean snitch and he needs to be a clean mole for the Baxters to take him back in. So did he really go away for tax evasion? Did they really make this fictional case of tax evasion? And that's what got put him in prison. The fact that ADA Jarek doesn't know the real reasons of him fixing a trial is interesting because that means everyone is really out of the loop on what really happened and why Michael really went to jail. I thought it was an interesting way to kind of backdoor confirm it's not well known why Michael went to prison. It's the secret's been kept this whole time because really, I mean, he's been out now for however long this has been. It's a little hard for me to judge time on this last season here because I'm like, how long do you guess it's been since since he's been out? A few months. Baby I'm sitting. Trying to up, think of the size of the baby. The like, baby's sitting upright, eating, you know, mushy foods in a in a high chair. That baby is now several months old. But I'm like thinking like six months old. I, I was just trying to figure that out because how long? I would say has not more than six. Kept? I would say I would say three to six months since he's out of jail. That feels right to me. Okay. A year and a half of him being since he went away. That the eighteen months yeah, of people like keeping a secret kept this quiet. Yeah, like I'm really trying to do the math, and especially him being back, and people being like, "Hello, <laughs> like what are you doing here?" <laughs> you know, like it's it's kind of interesting. I don't know, and they haven't really tried to. No one's asked him. Which I think is kind of fascinating, even within like the butcher shop and stuff like that. Like you might have thought someone might have said something. What'd you do, know. bro? Or like, you know, something there might have been some passing conversation. I don't know. So I, I, I find it fascinating that it's just something that's been looming, but not clear exactly what's happened. Him going away for tax evasion is interesting to me because one of the threads and we didn't really talk about this much was remember when he gets out of jail, he goes by his old house first and he's watching the family that lives there now. Why did, it's only a year he's away. He lost his house. But if he did go away for tax evasion, it's possible they seized all of his assets then as part of the ruse of him going away to jail. So him going away for something financial, some white collar financial crime like tax evasion would explain his pennilessness now mm. for okay. completing the show of the thing that the federal government would have seized his house and assets as part of his reparations for tax evasion. Cause you have to, there's a substantial fine that's levied with that kind of crime in addition sure. to jail time, which, again, they must have painted a really significant tax evasion crime for him to have lost all of his money plus do the jail time, you know, versus uh, uh, working out a plea deal. I just want Eugene to make it out of this series alive. He's really the one that I care about the most walking out of the series alive because I feel like he has been through the most in a way. 
Do you think he's been through more than Michael? I know he's lost his mother. He's lost his entire family. He lost his entire family. That's Michael true. lost his son. son. So mm-hmm. in sheer numbers wise. True. Yes. That's true. And and losing a mother. And being young, being a young kid versus being an adult. Right. And the loss of a child is something that neither of you or I can fathom. But having your mother blown up with all of your siblings right after your brother was brutally murdered also feels rough compared, you know, on the same on the same (laughs) level as a father losing their child or a parent losing their child. I mean, maybe there is no like apples to apples kind of comparison to grief and, and loss. But I agree with you that that he's a kid. You know, he basically has nowhere to go. It's it's one thing for Michael to be like in his late 50s having to kind of figure it out. Here's here's Eugene, you know, just a teenager having to have his whole life be taken away. So, there, I mean, yeah, I'm going with you. Eugene, Eugene's got it worse. Right. Michael made choices that led to what happened. Right. Eugene didn't make any choices. Everything you did, every, well, well, Eugene, up Eugene, at the gun at the hotel yes, was that was the, the only one choice. Yes, choice he had to make on his own, it and was, he made a bad one. <laughs> it was the only choice that he made that entire season, and it mm-hmm. worked out horribly. But otherwise, he was really a victim of circumstance versus Michael uh, leaving the police station that one fateful night and taking Adam home instead of facing the music right then and there. Right. Uh, th- this all springs really from that in in a way that decision really set everything else in motion now i think he was 100 percent right and 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 jimmy confirmed to frankie at the time i definitely would have killed that kid immediately but michael couldn't have known that he had just guessed at it so right. in every in every scenario i think michael loses adam it's just how long it takes and by whose gun or hand he dies, Jimmy's or Eugene's. But I, I think Adam dies in every timeline. Unfortunately, maybe Eugene's family dies in every timeline, too, because of who the Baxters are. And because of, you know, Kofi was involved with Desire. I mean, we can't forget while Eugene wasn't, Kofi was, there was going to be collateral damage possibilities for his family. Let's talk about Desire. We are getting the grand opening tonight of the Desi Boulet. Featuring one Janelle Williams. I looked into the what Desi Boulet means, and I thought it was very interesting. Desi Boulet is Creole for burning desire. But said another way, in a just straight translate word for word, desire burned. And I thought oh. that was interesting foreshadowing in that name. Yeah. That's awesome. Nice, nice work there, writers. Uh, I see what you did there. Plus, <laughs> plus, it is just a lot of fun to say Desi Boulet. <laughs> uh, we get two stare downs between Gina and Big Mo in this episode. What's your take on that foreshadowing? Is is this fight really going to come down to Big Mo and Gina and not Big Mo and Jimmy like we had guessed it would be? Ooh. Gina is the one who's willing to bring the fight right to Big Mo's face. And that, while it feels very different, I think that Jimmy, he can make like bigger moves that are quieter and more stealthy, but I think far more impactful. Gina's, I, I, you know, had that, had that alcohol been poisoned? Had there been, I mean, I thought for sure it was going to be actually, because as soon as she handed it over to Big Mo, all I kept thinking was women poison. That's how they kill people. They poison people. That's like their, their chosen method because it's, 
really passive and you don't actually have to see anything gross. And so that's how women choose to do it. So when I saw her hand this over, I'm like thinking like, oh, damn, it's poison. But but those like smaller antics that Gina's willing to pull, it's like she's willing to ruffle the feathers. But I think Jimmy's the one who would like actually pull a trigger. I originally thought she was actually going there with the liquor. I thought she was going to to start some kind of fire with it. I thought Molotov cocktail myself when she was like first like walking out of the hotel. Well, because it's right on the That's heels how of the it seemed. It's right on the heels of the conversation with Danetta from the grief counseling group where Danetta says I'd burn it to the ground mm-hmm. at the end of their conversation. Yes, so, I completely agree. And then we see her with that big ass jug of liquor. I was like, Oh, she could go start a fire. Like mm-hmm. she's she because that's Gina, right? Gina is the blunt instrument wielder. I, yeah. I see I I don't think Gina would do poison because, yes, that is considered the woman's way of killing. But Gina doesn't see herself like a woman in that way. Yeah, but I've never seen her handle a gun or handle anything like that. Like, we've got no backing for this, that she's actually someone who would pick up something like a knife or a gun or anything else. A fire is pretty wicked, but it's still kind of passive, right? It's passive, but it's it's more proactive. Remember, the Jones house was blown up in a gas leak, quote unquote gas leak, because of Gina. Gina ordered the exploding of a house. That's not very much unlike maybe the exploding of a club. She is the blunt instrument, whereas Jimmy, like you said, works behind the scenes and uses negotiation and, and does that kind of thing. Gina wields a blunt instrument. She may not wield it herself, but she orders people to wield with a blunt instrument. She is not subtle, I guess is my point. <laughs> Right, right, right. Uh, let, let's stay with uh, Big Mo and Desire because the seeds of dissent are really sown in this episode. They've pe- they've gotten rid of all the drugs. They've made enough money to get Roderick off their back. Chris earns himself a little bit of a bonus. Were you surprised to see the engagement ring in that in that safe, which presumably is for Janelle? I was surprised, but also it just confirmed what you and I have been saying this whole season, which is Big Mo's got her mind on Janelle and on the club and not on the on the gang. And this is going to be super problematic. And I've never proposed to anyone as someone who has proposed to someone. Do you feel like the state of mind you could you could understand where her head might be that day in that she's like handling that ring and kind of horsing around with it? Like clearly she's she's thinking about it and everything. Would this be a huge distraction? Would you guess? hundred percent. She's a hundred percent distracted. The only thing that was really questioning and and narratively for the, for the story that they wanted to set out she had to leave the ring in the in the safe at that point but the way the story plays out it really feels like why didn't she take the ring with her and propose to janelle either right before and when she sees her in the dressing room or right after and maybe she was going to propose to her after the performance but she didn't have the ring with her so maybe she wasn't going to propose it felt like the moment right yes Opening night feels like the right night. Right. Gestures, right? Big gestures, big moments seem like the kind of time that you would do that kind of thing. What are you waiting for if not for then? Uh, you're, you're having this whole, and especially given the conversation she has with Janelle of, uh, you know, I want to be with you forever. It feels like the exact right moment to, to pop that ring on her and let her go on stage with that ring on her finger. I think so. But I mean, I, all I could think about, honestly, wasn't really about her engagement plans. It was just about how distracted her brain must be, how she must be so split with her attention. Well, that's what Chris and says at the funeral, just, right? Yeah, this was just such a great like visual, though, of like her looking at an engagement ring box is enough for most of us to understand, well, shit, her brain is not on business right now. 
uh, Chris asks is trapped a little bit, right? He gets left behind at the headquarters because, you know, Big Mo says we've got to be ready for anything. I think that bothers him a little bit because at the end, of, at the beginning of the episode, he's with Big Mo in the street outside of the club when Gina, when she steps into the street and Gina screeches to a halt and stares at her and stares at the sign and stares at all of her men. Chris is there. So that told me that Chris is trying to work through his feelings as much as he is had it up to here with Big Mo and, and her lack of attention and focusing on the club and Janelle and his brother being dead, it felt like he understands he has to go back to work and his work is being part of desire. So he's trying to work through his shit. Finding that empty balloon in the street right outside of Bufa's, I felt that moment. When he says, fuck it, I was like, oh yeah. I, I felt the snapping of, of him inside. How did that moment hit you? I know that obviously a balloon in the drug world is very common and it, and it's it's not something that would be used like metaphorically or whatever, but I think the idea of a deflated balloon is like perfection in terms of, you know, it's it's all over. Like, you know, it kind of gives you that feeling of like the party's over and like, you know, all the balloons are deflated and everything. And obviously the gang itself, the group itself is, is just flaccid, right? There's nothing there. It's empty. And I, I think the balloon was doing a lot of work there. <laughs> but but you could feel it, you know? I, I felt like Chris was just finished with this bullshit, I don't blame him. I do not blame him. I don't either. And you can tell he's done with it because the gusto with which they smash up Bufas, they don't just rob the place. They fucking oh, trash yeah. that place. And and only a little bit of that was about robbing the money. Most of that about was about catharsis and therapy, you know, bat therapy to to make himself feel better and send a message to Big Mo. He could get away with that. I don't think that girl, I mean, that mask was so unconvincing given what Chris's <laughs> hair looks like. And the look right. that girl gives him and he just kind of like shakes his head and she goes, wait, she wasn't going to say anything, I don't think. She probably understands the situation. But he leaves the calling card. He leaves the empty drug balloon in the engagement box. Chris wants Big Mo to know he's coming for her. He wants, he leaves a calling card here. That is significant. That is, that is slight Slapping someone with a white glove. Yeah, it absolutely is. <laughs> nice. That's a little 1923 action for you, for you guys who are thinking, what do I go listen to after your honor when I'm done with this group? Go go check out our 1883-1923 coverage over on uh, prequels of Yellowstone. You'll love it. You'll yeah, totally we, love uh, it. We get, we get white, white glove slapping for duels. <laughs> If I was Chris, though, this it was all so personal. So when you're talking about like how amazing this like smash up was, I was looking at it as like a crime of passion, you know, like this is so freaking personal that he just he had to not just not just take stuff, but he had to make it to where this was going to hurt to clean up, you know, like this was going to be like horrible for her to deal with. Right. And we only see the Bufas, but we know from Russ telling Big Mo they hit the trap houses, too. So Big Mo lost all of her money because she even makes the point in the beginning of the episode, secure all the money at the trap houses as well as Bufas. That's Chris's charge. So she probably would have figured out Chris must have had something to do with it, even if he doesn't leave the calling card. But he does. When you add that together with the enthusiasm with which he destroys the club, you're 100 percent right. It's personal. This is not just about business. This was or or. Or, or even common theft. This wasn't just about stealing money. This was about sending a message to Big Mo. This was a personal message. But I think this, I think this was very much a declaration of war from inside of Desire. The coup d'etat of Desire has begun, I think. I think that's what this my takeaway from this episode was. 
A hundred percent, a hundred percent, which, which we saw coming for a while now. And I hope that like our listeners are like, this is exactly what we thought was going to happen because, you know, I've seen a lot of, a lot of question marks on other like chat rooms and stuff like that. And I'm like, wasn't this like obviously coming, but you know, not everyone listens to our podcast. Mike. Everyone not should everybody though. Knows how we get to where we get. And uh, yeah, I think that you're, I think you're dead on. This is where we're at. I understand why Janelle is upset when Big Bo curses at her and and then the gun and all that and she walks away. I feel like Big Bo in that moment, though, had the right to react the way she did. One, the circumstances and maybe Janelle's not picking up the, the significance of everything that had just happened right before she walks, walks in. But also safety wise, you know, she asks, she tells her to go home out of safety because she doesn't want Janelle to be taking a bullet in her gut. When she walks in, all of those guns go flying at her face. Easily, one of those guys could have been trigger happy and shot Janelle dead I get in the moment and the passion and the heat of the moment why Big Mo screams and yells there I don't know that this is going to be the relationship killer for these two but maybe it is maybe forever isn't as long as they were talking about before her performance but I kind of understand where Big Mo is coming from in that moment it felt like like a little kid coming into like grown folks business like it did felt like what are you doing here? you know like and and she'd already told her to like back off and like stay out of this this side right. of my life you know and so to just kind of pop up it, it was she doesn't know how reckless it was perhaps but certainly big mo does and you know you could feel the love that she does have for janelle she just wants her to be safe right. but it's 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 all going to come out in ugly snotty horrible comments she's just so frustrated this entire thing's falling apart right in front of her face including her relationship with janelle Let's get back to Desi Boulay because I, I want to talk about the vibe of the place. I, I got to tell you, I was really digging everything happening in that club. I feel I felt like I was comparing the two. Would I rather be at Desi Boulay on that night or the sleepy piano bar of the Baxter house? I think I definitely want to be in the Desi Boulay. I'm curious what you thought of the vibe of the club. What did you think of Janelle's very pointed performance of Ariana Grande's 2016 single Dangerous Woman, which she very much saying at Big Mo. <laughs> Good that we share brain because I 100% was just comparing it to Jimmy Baxter's birthday party. And I was thinking like, would I rather be there? Would I rather be at, at Big Mo's club? And, you know, I'm with you. I think it looked like a lot more fun. People were laughing and, and really enjoying themselves. And the music was great. And everybody was just like, just, just happy to be there as opposed to obligatory attendance at Jimmy Baxter's uh, birthday party. You know, as cool as both parties are, I'd rather be at Big Mo's, I think. Um, the, the song choice, I mean, obviously, like you said, I mean, she was just like piercing eyes into Big Mo. Um, you know, I, I think that this was great casting. You brought it up at the very beginning that that she is such a wonderful singer and such has a, such a stage presence that this was such amazing casting. And I'm glad they got a chance to really let her shine here because that didn't have to happen. And I'm glad it did. Sultry song, sultry voice, sultry outfit. Yeah. It all worked. Yeah. It was great. It was great. Guy, go look up the lyrics to Dangerous Woman. It is so apropos of everything we're talking about Big Mo and where she's at and Janelle's relationship with Big Mo. I mean, there's lines in there. I don't need permission. I made my decision to test my limits. That's Janelle because it's my business. God is my witness. Start what I finish. Don't need no holdup. That's Big Mo. There's a line here at the end. Nothing to prove and I'm bulletproof and I know what I'm doing. All girls want to be like that. Bad girls underneath like that. Janelle, you're not bulletproof. Let, let's 
let's not get it twisted. <laughs> Big Mo is not bulletproof. You are in danger. Big Mo's life, there's a large portion of Big Mo's life that is all danger. And bullets will fly. Go look at those lyrics. They're, they're, it's a great song choice. Why, why not do an old jazz standard again? That seems to be Janelle's whole thing. Well, she made it that sultry jazz sound, but with very good pointed lyrics that apply to her and Big Mo. Really like a great do, song do choice. Do you like it when, when they take songs and, and kind of switch up genres or switch up tempos like that? I love it. I, I love it. It breathes, <laughs> it, it breathes new life into it. You get to reevaluate the whole song in that new way. Why this song? I love playing the game of TV shows and movies. Why this song for this scene in this moment? And a well-done show is going to have an answer there, or at least something you can think about in the theory you can play, like like we're doing right now with Dangerous Woman. Maybe it's a, maybe this one was even more on the nose, but I love playing that game. So yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of it. I always feel like I pay more attention to the lyrics when they change the genre because there's something about it that it's like the genre is new. I don't know. It, it like highlights the lyrics more for me right. because, you know, previous the music had been composed and the lyrics to go together. So when you separate them, there's something about it that just really like puts a spotlight on it. Well, it calls attention to it, right? It makes mm-hmm. you it makes you go, oh, that's different. Let me let me figure out why. What are yeah. they doing here with it? What are they trying to show me or tell me with it? Let's talk. We talk, mentioned the Baxter house. Let's get over to the Baxter house. Jimmy living in Fia's suite. I don't think that was really a surprise to anyone. Let's talk about Jimmy and Carlo, because I see Carlo in that black on black three piece suit. And my first thought in my notes was Carlo looks good. I I like this look a lot. I was a big fan of this look. But then you have Jimmy commenting on his sartorial choices. I want to I want to play the tie clip. Man's clothing says a lot about who he is. I commend you on your sartorial choices of late. You look professional. Hmm? Like someone to be taken. Seriously, this tie, though. You don't like it? Oh, it's fine. For now. You're young and in charge of men much older than you, so... You don't wear one? Mm Mm-mm. Most men wear ties because they have to, right? The absence of a tie lets people know that you answer to no one. To each his own, though, son. You look good. Thanks, Dad. Hallelujah. I have to tell you, I super appreciated that clip because I've been watching the Murdoch trial, which is a very prestigious family on trial. The the husband is on trial right now. He was found guilty for killing the wife and the son. However, Mike, he never wore a tie. He never wore a tie, but he wore like a blazer and he wore like a button shirt, buttoned up, you know, button down shirt, as well as his his living son and his brothers. They don't wear ties. It hit me because, of course, all the rest of the lawyers in the room, which the defendant is also a lawyer, they all had ties on. But he, who thinks he's above everybody and everything, didn't wear a tie on the day, on all these days when he's going to be accused of doing all these things. I found it fascinating that he didn't choose to wear one. And then when I heard this clip, when we were when I was watching the episode, I thought, this is a really good explanation. You know, if you think you're above everything, you don't wear a tie because you don't you don't answer to anybody. It's great insight. I see it all the time in my in my daily job, the power dynamic that clothes represents, a tie, a suit, how you present yourself, the air with which 
that influences the room and it sets the power dynamic. It's a great insight Jimmy has here, and I agree with it. Here's the problem I have with it. I don't want Carlo going rogue. I don't want Carlo not answering to anyone. Carlo needs to be answering to Jimmy. He needs to be on a leash. Carlo, rogue Carlo not listening to anyone or answering to anyone (laughs) is not a situation anyone wants, Jimmy. Let's keep a tie on him. You say that phrase, rogue Carlo. It's like, no! It Carlos sounds like loose. we've got a loose Carlo. He's gone rogue. <laughs> it sounds like when, uh, like with Saturday morning cartoons, and they're like, "We have this great new action figure, Rogue Carlo," <laughs> and they show like little kids with like making a little Rogue Carlo kick things and stuff. I could totally see it. What do you think the significance is of the fact that they know Fia is at Michael's house but haven't done anything? Doesn't it feel like the kind of thing where Gina would have gone over there with a shotgun and a and a net to drag her back? See, you could have done that when she lived in the hotel, but now that this is like a second move, I don't think you can do it on the second move. I think at this point, you know, if you scare her, she's going to go even further. So, no, I think this is one of those things where even though you're upset that she's there, it's better you know where she is and you can keep an eye on her than than chase her any further where she might go, you know, where you don't know where she could go. Let's get to Gina, because I think Gina had the most interesting storyline of the Baxters in this episode. There are a few clips that really summon up all together but i want to stay with rogue carlo and taking orders and keeping that tie on him because i feel like that action figure is gonna have like and now you can take the tie, like removable tie it comes with a whole surveillance system exactly it's like the the system is just like it's like one of those like uh monitor module things that you just like sit him in yeah. it's like there's all screens around him that's the whole game with with Rogue Carlo. Rogue Carlo comes complete with his action set with his just uh, surveillance cave. It's the security <laughs> office of the Baxter House now complete with Rogue Carlo and removable tie. Tie sold separately. Uh, yes, com- com- comes with liquor bottle, Desi Boulay liquor bottle. Nice. Pour one out for the homies with Rogue Car- Carlo. Oh my God, that was funny when she did that. By the way, uh, so rude that she pushes the bottle back into uh, into okay. Big Bo's chest. Anyway, I yeah, total separate thing, and, and and feel free to edit this out, but I couldn't help it. When they're so nose-to-nose and there's so much tension in that scene... I know you just want them to kiss. I I just want them to kiss. But imagine (laughs) what the rage sex would be like between Big Mo and Gina. The amount of broken furniture and clawing. It would be intense. I don't know that I want to see it, but I can also totally see it in my head. It would be super (laughs) intense. Just so you guys know, if you guys don't follow all of the rest of our podcasts, Mike ships everyone all the time. Everyone should be getting together all the time. So definitely, yeah, I could see that we're in in a Mike's dream journal. Oh my God, ripping clothes <laughs> while they're snarling and biting each other. It would be hot business, but it would be violent as hell. Anyway, yeah. let's, anyway, Intense. Gina leaves Carlo with this because on the way to Desi Boulay, J- Jimmy says, dad says not to initiate. And then on the the way back from the club, he 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 mentions Jimmy again and Jimmy's orders and 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 how this is going to be a problem with Jimmy because remember Carlo is basking in the glow of Jimmy's approval for the first time in his life. He has an important job now with Jimmy, so he's Jimmy this and Jimmy this. And Gina sets him very much straight. So let's take a listen. Mom, mom, what the fuck was that? Carlo, I know how much your father's approval means to you, and I want you to have that. But just remember this: you. 
quick clip, but it, but it sets the stage for what will be, I think, the final two hours insofar as the Baxter story goes. This power struggle of, cause the, the metaphor of who will Jimmy, who will Rogue Carlo follow, <laughs> Jimmy or Gina is a metaphor, I think, for how the entire Baxter family goes. Remember, he can go to war with Desire all he wants, but if Jimmy doesn't have his foot soldiers to go to actual war because they're being controlled by Gina, then he can't wage war on anyone. So this question of do you follow Gina or do you follow Jimmy, I think is going to become a very important question in the, in the final two hours of the show. Well, do you have a guess? Is he gonna is he gonna end up going with his mom or going with his dad? I think he ends up going with his dad because it's the approval he always wanted. He never had to work for his mother's approval. He's always wanted his father's approval. The people I've ever known like that always choose the one who didn't give it freely. They always choose the one that made them work for it. Hmm. I was going to go with mom because I feel like she has a point with the you came out of me. And at the end of the day, like, I think that she could yank his chain hard enough to to drag him back. But I'm, I'm willing to leave that on the table. I think we're going to get an answer. This feels like one of those questions that they're going to answer. Oh, yeah. And there's going to be some some massive betrayal. Yes, 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 yes. Because that plays into the main thrust of Gina's entire arc in this episode, set off by her conversation with Danetta in the coffee bar. She's so funny here. She's so awkward around humans and talking to them. <laughs> when she says, I don't really get along with women, Gina, you don't really get along with humans. You, you, were, you were just <laughs> an awkward, awkward human. <laughs> well, she just wants everyone to listen to her and be and control everyone. And it turns out, like, no one wants to be a friend like that. <laughs> you know, that, that only works for you to have underlings. I mean, just to, to make the I feel like a mother without any children to a mother who actually doesn't have any children says all you need to know about Gina and her awareness of the of those around her. But really nice to see her have this more self-awareness side, which is very small. It's a sliver. But she caught herself and apologized and was like, OK, I, I shouldn't have said that. Like, you know, I mean, she actually is having a moment here where she is showing quite a bit of belly. I was quite surprised. And I was really glad that the other mother met her where she was and didn't like continue to like require more apologies or whatever. Like she instantly was like team Gina like she was like I burned the house down like that because like she instantly like like stood up to the line with Gina like Let, let's let's fucking do this like whose house we burning down you know Danetta was amused by her and then I think a little bit went over and then when the more they talked and we're gonna get into this clip I think Danetta ends up crystallizing perfectly everything Gina had been feeling and maybe couldn't put words to Danetta helps her focus that energy. So this clip leads into the final conversation she has of the episode with Jimmy. So let's listen. These are the two marriage clips. Let's listen to this one first. I notice that you never talk about your husband. I'm not sure there's anything left to say. My marriage fell apart because of my son's death. I wanted to stage an intervention, but... My husband didn't want to accept how bad things had become. By the time he agreed, it was too late. And I could never forgive him for that. Right? My husband bought Rocco the motorcycle he was killed on. And then when Fia started to pull away, much like you, I advocated for an aggressive response. But Jimmy said no. You know, he was afraid he would push her away. And now she's left us anyway. Gina, don't let 
let him stand between you and your children. They are the only babies that you are ever going to have. You can always get a new husband. This conversation was really started with Gina when she was talking to Carmine, her father, in Rocco's room a couple of episodes ago. And she made the comparison that you and mom never had these problems. And Carmine says, squeeze harder, don't let go. You know, your father, your husband is a lot like your mother. So this conversation has been percolating in Gina's mind. But this conversation is the most blunt statement of Gina hearing it from a third party of your babies are more important than your husband. You can get a new, you can get a new husband. You can't get new babies. Really, I felt like crystallized everything she was feeling. Oh yeah. I like howled when she said that. I was like, Ooh, <laughs> because it's, I mean, Hey, it's true. I mean, it's just true. Which leads us to, I mean, yes, I, I didn't include in this clip the burn the burn the heroin den down to the ground, but we talked about that already. But let's get to it. We th- that conversation launches into more of the self reflection, which leads to this final conversation of the episode between Gina and Jimmy out on the balcony of the Baxter House. I'm really sorry, Jimmy. Right there. When has Gina ever started a conversation or remember even said the words, I'm sorry about something, especially as relates to Jimmy? I'm guessing Jimmy's uh, hair went up on the back of his neck. You know it. You know his ass clenched hard about whatever was incoming now. Let's take a listen. I'm really sorry, Jimmy. The night Rocco died, I knew right then that you and I would never make it. I pushed you to do things, to exact revenge, so that the pain might be a little easier to bear. But that didn't help. None of, none of that made it any better. And we can never change the fundamental truth that it's your fault that Rocco is dead. And I will never love you again. Oof. Oof. Yeah, that was freaking harsh. I mean, freaking harsh. Now, she never says the word divorce, which I think is interesting. So does this mean, do you think, do you think they go for the divorce route or do you think they just formally adopt forever separate lives? running the empire together but you will have your business i will have my business and let's not pretend we are actually married and or in love we are divvying up our world and maybe including uh, rogue carlo i don't know because i don't think that that would satisfy gina i don't think co-captain is what she's looking for no i agree so I don't think there's any chance of this sort of concept of like, let's go, you know, you you mind your store, I'll mind mine, but we're going to still just be in this together. I think she has no interest in any ties with him. I don't know how that works. I mean, obviously they have businesses, they've got finances, they've got children, they've got stuff going on here that, that you know, we all know in the real world, you don't get to just unentangle from exes and whatnot. So, I mean, this is the way it is. So I don't know exactly what Gina is expecting or wanting. I think it's really in this one, not about the the pragmatic or practical portion of, of how do we separate these two lives. It's more her saying, I don't love you. 
and I'm never going to love you again and all that stuff. That's just like, holy shit. Like, it doesn't matter if you call it separation, divorce, whatever you call it, man. I mean, she said it as painfully as you possibly can. I don't even know that we need to get into blaming Jimmy. She's been blaming Jimmy solely for Rocco's death. Yes. Then it seems super unfair for her to do, but it's how she is processing it. I don't know that we can keep beating that dead horse. But the thing that did interest me from this was Jimmy takes all of this in completely stone-faced, no emotion on his face. I, I I edited from there his side of the clip. The He tries to save them and tries to defend them as a viable couple that in the aftermath of a lost child, I've read about this, people struggle, but we can make it through. I cut all of that out because at the end of the day, Gina's response of... I will never love you again, really slams the door shut on whatever defenses Jimmy was going to be able to or want to throw up at her of don't give up on us, capital U. But he takes this all in very passively and very calmly and very coolly, which is not really Jimmy's thing. So the question is, once he digests this information, does he explode? Is another bird going to get bashed to death? Is another Frankie going to get beat to death? Does he explode? Or do you think he just takes this in and internalizes it? It seems like, I mean, like you said, we could beat the dead horse of who's responsible for Rocco's death. But at the end of the day, he knew that Rocco's death really was the death of his marriage because Gina just turned on him immediately. Immediately. So he's been simmering on this for some time. I mean, they've had a lot of run-ins. I mean, and the ones that we see on screen, you know, are just the tip of the iceberg. Like, you know, there's been a million more blow-ups. They say when you have nothing left to argue about, that's when it's really over. When nobody says anything, when it's just like, oh, okay, uh, that's when it's done, when you don't have a big blow up. So to me, I'm not really expecting a big blow up over this. I kind of think he's going to move on. Maybe, but maybe someone does bear the brunt of his rage in an attempt for him to win her back because he doesn't want to give up on it. So doing something like going to war with Big Mo, maybe having Big Mo killed, maybe doing something demonstrative like burning down Desi Boulay, maybe he's the one who does it in an attempt to see, show her, look, Gina, I'm coming to your side. I'm coming to you and how you want to do things as a, as a way of venting his anger which i i think has to explode out of him but also a sick twisted way of winning her back i don't know that that's fully off the table i agree with you i think your assessment is dead on i'm really playing more devil's advocate of alternative paths they could go down well in thinking of the alternative paths, see i don't i don't know that i feel like he's so in love with her like it's power though it's about power not love well, right? it's about pride right not being not having her walk away from him yes you know that's a huge part i like the idea that he would take the war to big mo because that makes good tv if it's because he thinks he's gonna win gina back i don't know because this is not the way he wants to continue to do business and she's not going to accept any kind of backslide to more negotiation type business so unless he's signing on to be a true like shoot up the whole front uh you know the store kind of gangster and you know kill everyone in his way i i mean he's like he would have to sign up for that forever now so much of what's going to come of, of what's going to happen i think of the main storylines war between baxters and desire in particular 
and what happens between Michael and Jimmy and Olivia's plan to bring down the Baxters, the underlying stuff feels so important. Desire is going to maybe go to war with Baxters. The, the detente is over. But Big Mo has to fight her own internal battle now here, which I feel like she can't survive because she is so spread thin and distracted. But Jimmy can't go to war because he's not necessarily in control of his family now. And now he has this marital fallout. And you're 100% right. Gina's not looking for co-captaincy. She wants to run the Conti family, not the Baxter family. She wants to run the Conti crime family in New Orleans. Right. And and so that has to get. So you have all of this underlying percolating. I'm making little jazz finger things to represent <laughs> underlying bubbling. Uh, you know, all of that is going to affect the larger storylines that need to move forward and wrap up. So it's all interconnected. It's all it's all interweaved. It's it's super interesting to see how they approach these final two hours. I'm looking forward to it. I'm I'm ready for some massive explosions and some people to finally like run straight into each other because it's time. We've set the scene for all these people. There's there's not just the Baxters versus, you know, Desire. We have the the conflict within Desire. We have the conflict within the Baxters. We have the conflict really within Michael and how to handle things within Lee and how to handle things. There's so many little moments here that have to all explode. I'm very much looking forward to it. Plus Charlie's relationship with Michael. Michael and whatever role he he's still the mayor of this town. He's going to have a say in every single thing you just mentioned. Charlie, as mayor of the city, has a say in and has a role to play in it. And we didn't even get to see him this episode. It's there's a lot. There's a lot here that's happening. There's a lot here still up in the air. There's a lot here to be addressed in these final two hours. So it's going to be an exciting ride. I hope you guys buckle up with us as we go into next week's penultimate episode of the series. <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to it. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to Tales from Yaya's, your dedicated after show podcast for Showtime's Your Honor. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. And while you're there, if you could leave us a five-star review, if you write something nice about us, we're going to read it on the air, just like Desney Mom's review. Excellent analysis, five stars. Caroline and Mike helped me get so much more out of both Your, your Honor and 1923 Podcasts. I now watch each episode with a much more critical looking for clues and easter eggs i have a much better understanding of each show and a massive amount of respect for the writers we do too we love the writers we love the worlds that they've created in 1923 and here on your honor thank you so much desning mom we appreciate you writing in we hope you guys leave us a five-star review and we'll meet you at desi boulet we'll pour one out for the homies it's gonna be a good time come come uh, come meet us for a drink that'd be awesome thank you guys so much for listening thank you for listening this has been an original pod clubhouse production Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.